Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, what a strange week it's been. It's back to work after the break for most of us and of course new national lockdowns in England and Scotland. It's not the start we wanted to the new year and I hope everyone is getting by okay. It's going to be a challenging time for lots of people in so many different ways. On this week's podcast, we welcome New Zealand event rider Tim Price as our guest. Tim will tell us about his team of top horses, including the veteran favourite, Wesco. When he goes in the ring, he knows that's the time that he will do as best as we can do together. And that's just not something you get with every horse, even some of the great horses. I'll also be joined by some of my horse and hound colleagues to round up the latest news from COVID to dressage scores. Finally, I'm delighted to introduce a new expert for our advice slot, We'll be hearing from Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. It's something to treat horses as horses, but it's very easy, I think, for for people to treat horses as their their kids and um, lose sight of how the horse-human relationship really works. More from Jason later. For now, zip up your coat and let's get going. I'm delighted to introduce our first podcast guest of the new year. I'm joined today by the New Zealand event rider, Tim Price. Tim has been the world number one, he's an Olympian, and he was the winner of Burley in 2018. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast, Tim. Thank you for having me, Papa. So, Tim, we've got a feature in this week's magazine about Wesco. He's known to you as Dash. He really is the grand old man of your stable now. He's 18 years old. And he was your first five-star winner. He's been on the podium a couple of other times at five-star. So he's got such a solid CV at that top level. Tell us, what makes him such a special horse for you? Um, Well, it's just a... The main, the main thing you mentioned there was the, the first horse that gave me victory at, at the top level, Le Moulin, um, some years ago now, 2014. Um, that's something I'll never forget, of course, and treasure and be forever grateful for, for him to, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing where you've, where you've, you know, put everything to one side and moved across to another hemisphere and uh, really vying to get into those top echelons of the sport. And you're never quite sure that it's going to happen. So, you know, when it does happen, that's kind of a breakthrough moment. And um, yeah, so now it feels like it's something that I can, you know, have a crack at most of the major events at doing. But back then, it seemed like the impossible task. So um, he held my hand and I'm, yeah, that's that's something that's very special. But he's just been an ultimate partner in, in the whole um, eventing, you know, what's required um, to deliver good results and uh, and we've had so much fun together that, that he's a very special horse to me. And he was second at Kentucky as well and I know that our listeners are always fascinated by the idea of, of horses going on planes. I know it's a while ago now, I think it was 2015, but um, can you remember sort of what the plans were that you had to put in place in order to fly him and how the quarantine worked and all that sort of thing for that trip? Yeah, it's definitely an undertaking. Um, the Kentucky trip in particular, is, it's of all the sort of competitions that you might have to take a flight to, it's probably one that works better than most because we're going to a fairly similar climate to what we'd have in the, the spring. Okay, it's going to be hopefully a little bit warmer, but but generally speaking, we're not going to a hot country for some Olympics, you know, something like that, for example. Um, so it works well on that front. Um, there's the quarantine, as soon as you arrive in, in America, uh, Chicago, they have a couple of days quarantine um, before making their way down 
uh, and a trailer down to, to Kentucky itself. Um, you, the horses would be away for a couple of weeks all up. It's a very much a, you know, get in, compete and get out kind of plan. Um, so that then they can come back and have a well-earned break and recover and everything back in their home environment. But, um, but yeah, he's a great traveller. Well, he's actually not a very good traveller by land sometimes, but he definitely knew that it was a time to, to just put his head down and relax um, when travelling on a plane. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not the most natural thing, but these horses at the top level, they are accustomed to it and, you know, they're fit, so they, they cope with it very well. Um, and they know that that's part of their job. So, so no, he, uh, he, he did a good job, arrived there in good health and um, delivered an almost winning performance um, out there. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's a real professional, isn't he? Like he's a horse who's, who's strong in all three phases. He doesn't really have a weak phase. And he's also a really endearing character, I understand, from, from our conversations. And I was also speaking to Lucy Miles, your, uh, your yard manager, about him. What sort of makes him such a favourite and so endearing in his personality? <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, not, I'm not one. I'm a, just a, you know, a, a bloke, if you like, riding horses. So... I appreciate my horses and I really enjoy their individual personalities and things. So don't get me wrong there, but this, this horse is something else. He's like almost, you know, he's got that human element in him where he has a, a personal relationship with everyone and he inflicts himself on people, not in a, um, he doesn't go overboard, but he just knows how to just get people really wanting to give him tidbits mainly it's all about the food <laughs> but, <laughs> but no he's uh he's very clever clever in that sense and yeah like you say endearing character he just wants to please he's not an absolute um out and out eventer i would say he does a lot of it from his head and his, his uh, ability to to steal himself up for the job and he's proved that time and time again um he's not big and scopy and full of everything he does it through technique and through application of his abilities and and that's just another credit to his intelligence i think and uh you know he's he's had a really tough time at some events and that's something that you don't want to bestow on horses very often you know he almost um you know didn't in some ways didn't make it home around the uh, world championships at in France in uh, 2000, and where were we, 2015? 2014, wasn't it? 14. The same year he won Lemoulin, yeah. Now. Exactly, and um, so, you know, he's, we, we pulled up two, two fences from home, and that's really getting into the bottom of a horse, and, you know, for him to come back and to steal up again at many five stars and, you know, various competitions after that is a real testament to him. And it's all these things that just make him a really a really cool package um you know he's cheeky he's had run outs he was naughty he got eliminated at Dauncey his last prep run before Poe last year so you know that's just him being cheeky trying me out and I actually turned it into a positive that it was him uh in, in a good in a good physical way that he was you know just playing with the boundaries and we went away and we just scored a little bit over some skinnies and then he came and brought his A game to the to the major event of of his of his season um so it's not like he's just out there giving you know doing everything with ease he's he does it through application and and uh he's a showman he knows when it's time to to go and just deliver the the performance that really counts and he you know he can he can be all sorts of things but when he goes in the ring he knows that's the time that he will um it's in his interest and my interest and it's just great fun to, to go and do as best as we can do together and that's just not something you get with every horse even some of the great horses so you know he's a real fun little mix of all these things that makes him very special 
Uh, it's so naughty to go and get eliminated at Dauncey just before uh, just before <laughs> Poe. I can't believe Cheeky, that. It was at the second to last fence, a skinny coming up out of Beanie Sturgis's um, famous water crossing there. Um, and in these COVID times, there's not many people allowed to come to the events, as we all know. But the one place there was a slight congregation of people was just at that point. And there goes old Wesco on his way to Poe, walking home from the second to last fence on the uh, cross country at intermediate level in the lead. Um, so there we go. <laughs> so, he, you know, he's, he's got a bit of spice, but it's, uh, it's just who he is. And, uh, you know, that's where we can you know, make sure it comes out in the right way at these big events as we have done a fair few times. Yeah, and of course he did come through then at Poe to, uh, to finish third, his second time being third there. So we'll forgive him for being naughty at Dauncey. <laughs> but looking yeah. to later in this year, I know that you're not sort of prejudging whether he could be a horse for Tokyo or, or not, particularly because you've got such a strong hand of horses at the moment. And the other five-star winner in your stable is Ringwood Skyboy. He's another real faithful campaigner for you, also 18 years old, the Burley winner. And he's had six other top 10 five-star placings as well as that win at Burley. Tell us a little bit about about him and his personality. Yeah, he's he's a real extrovert. You know, everything with with uh, Sky Boy or Aussie as we call him at home is he steps forward. He you know he'll he'll leap off a cliff and you know just do whatever is in front of him. He'll he'll go forward into. He doesn't think so much. He just does. And uh, so as a young horse, he was he was nicknamed the Bolter. You know, that's how I got him for next to nothing as a seven year old for those kind of reasons, but in a seven-year-old capacity, which is um, a little bit unruly and difficult to manage. So it was a bit more um, a job of sort of bringing out his talent. And that definitely took a few years. But through those few years, he's really cemented himself as part of our our family of horses, of long-staying horses in the yard and a, and a real favourite with everyone. Now, A, he's earned his, you know, the, the true respect from so many times going out and um, trying so hard around in particular places like Burley where he's got a fantastic record over over many starts fallen a couple of times but he's been top top five I think about four times or something um so so that's something that's really earned his his position in our yard and he is still the same character who just you know he just is out there but it's all a bit more under control him being a bit more mature now and things but he's such a happy horse and we love him to bits um yeah and him and and Dash actually are I really, you know, got a good bond. They're so different, um, but they've been to a lot of competitions together and live together next to each other in stable in the field. And, yeah, they're just old buddies that like to hang out. So, so you know, he's a really fun horse. And it's just so, not sad, but these guys getting to their older years, you know, just when they've, you know, everything's so fun with them. It's very different to bringing young horses along. Um, but, but, yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's just a sh- bit of a shame to be thinking about, you know, retirement and things like that with them because I've just been such a joy. Mm, been been such such great horses for you. And there's a horse in your stable who I always think is a little bit underrated, which is Xavier Fair, because he's been third at Kentucky and Badminton, but maybe because you have those other horses who sort of won at that level, he almost gets forgotten a little bit and, and flies under the radar, despite the fact that he has had those two thirds at the top level. How does he sort of fit into the string for you? Yeah, he's a really interesting horse, and I would agree with you with that because those are some great performances, and and you know th- those have been for him PB on the flat, which is knocking around thirty twenty nine uh, thirty one last year um, at Poe by by my memory, 
Um, and, you know, so those, those for him are, are top efforts. He's not a natural-born dressage horse, but what he is is he's a great galloper, jumper, um, and a day three show jumper. And he's done that at those two competitions where he, he was third, but he's also um, achieved that at Poe last year. He was double clear. Um, I just had a few time faults in the cross country, um, which pushed us down the order a bit. Um, but he's he's a great three-day event horse, you know, proper old-fashioned three-day event horse, big and scopy, kind of all those things that um, Wesco isn't in terms of a five-star eventer. This guy is. He's all brawn and scope and boldness. Um, and I, I think the best is ahead of him. He's younger than the other two. He's 15. Um, out and out burly horse. I'm really excited for him for the next couple of years, um, in particular around those sort of big tracks. He's off to badminton this year, burly later in the year. Hopefully everything going to plan, and um, that's really exciting. So hopefully he'll pick up the mantle a little bit, and, um, and yeah, the best is yet to come, as I say. Mm. He's a horse yeah. who actually, I think, he, am I right in saying he had quite a bad injury before he sort of even reached the five-star yeah. and had some time out, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he he did. He uh, he actually broke a bone in his in his front limb. So, quite a um, a rare injury to have in terms of um, bone breaking. And it wasn't just a fracture; it was quite quite substantial. But also to come back to full you know full fitness and top level. Um, but we were just lucky that it was caught very early, like within hours of it happening. He was with his old paddock mate round at his um, owner's owner's farm and, uh, and just a usual set up on holiday and just caught him in a funny way um, with a discussion with his little pony friend but but yeah we caught it very early and we had to stabilize it and um, and he was very fortunate to come back from that but you know that's part of horses and they all you know they sometimes have something like that well not like that but a, you know a bit of time down um, before coming back so really happy mm. to have him yeah. yeah, he's obviously a tough cookie to, to come back yeah. from that and, and be a top, sure. a top horse. Now, those yeah. are your big three horses in my mind, but I know you've got a couple of others who are sort of at the four-star level who um, maybe would be starting to think about stepping up or consolidating at that four-star level. Um, I know there's Falco and there's Spartaco. Tell us a little bit about those ones who are, who are going to be hopefully coming up and, as you say, taking up the mantle. Yeah, so we've got... Um, yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm very lucky with those ones. They're, and perhaps with the... Um, Olympics being this year, not last year, might might strengthen their chances because if if anything they're just lacking a little bit of experience at the advanced and above level. Obviously, not five star yet, but um, but this gives them a bit more of an opportunity to get more consolidated at that level. Uh, Spartaco, he's a he's a young young horse. He's uh, um, ten years old and he's hopefully going to go through to a um, somewhere like Samur. Um, for his second four long so he's an exciting horse uh, Janelle and I own him so we've produced him sympathetically up to this point and we're looking forward to having some fun with him um, yeah Senzafina she's going to go do her first four long she just had a little niggly uh, injury last year but then there wasn't much to do anyway um, but she's going to come out she's a really special mare um, come from come down from Italy or come up from Italy um, about two years ago f for me to ride uh, Falco is a very exciting horse but he's he's his trajectory has been a little bit marred by bits and pieces in the in the cross-country department where he's had a little yeah he's been learning um, but he's been a bit cheeky but he's a very very good jumper and that's uh, often, you know, been the, you know, been finding us out a little bit, and uh, with with his learning to deal with these, you know, very technical courses around sort of four short level, 
Um, but he has been around a couple of four longs double clear now. And um, so, so he's actually one I, I, I consider very seriously uh, for this year and potentially the Olympics if he has a really good run in. Um, mm. Just because he's so smart in the other phases. He's, a, yeah, like I say, a very good jumper. So he'll, he'll be one to watch. Um, that I, if all going to plan, uh, I might actually think about taking him across to Kentucky um, as his first five star. So we'll just see, see how he comes along. Mm, and I'm sure um, it's sort of a nice problem to have, but when you have a string that big, how do you sort of juggle making those spring plans for them? It sounds like you already know sort of what, what you're targeting with each of those horses in the spring. How do those plans sort of fall into place? It's, it's not easy. It's been referred to as a, a bit of a war chart in the past because you, it's, there's so many things to consider and the first, you just have to keep bringing yourself back to what is right for this horse and you work, you know, in terms of its, uh, its ultimate competition and then you work back from that and, and then you have to fiddle and tweak and then timing comes into it and, and you know, obviously suitability of these, these competitions and things. Um, so, so, no, that's, that's all, all part of it. Um, we, we try to get to Spain um, to do some show jumping at the very beginning of February. And we feel it just really gets us and the horses going. Um, and we, it's, it's a good venue down there where we, where we can get some fitness work into the horses that are doing early three-day events. And we can come back and feel like we're a little bit ahead of the curve so we can get into our, um, into our early competitions um, you know, with a good, you know, good physical preparation and ready to go. Mm, that's an interesting but it's not trip. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's an interesting that you've done that 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 trip to do some show jumping in Europe. Is you've done that for a couple of years now, haven't you? We have. We've been down there for about the last four years, and it, we just feel it's been a real uh, advantage for some of the horses, and you know more more some than others, but um, never a disadvantage. Um, but you know, with eventers, they're all round horses, and that, so they're not necessarily classic jumpers but so it's more about them learning their own technique and their own ability and just repeating that process of them going in and knowing that this is a, a show jump round and then you start and you jump round and they get confident and they get strong and like I say the surfaces are great you're on grass you're on you're on artificial uh, and yeah it's just a really great start point to actually get that under your belt come back sort of mid-march and and then start to line up some cold, wet and windy horse trials. <laughs> so, but especially when you've got these early three-day events, this year in particular, we um, have the, the likes of Kentucky. Uh, the following week is Samur. The following week after that is Badminton. So that's all coming up very early. And uh, I've got horses at all three of those, hopefully. So it'll be a very busy time. And it's just, you just want to be... Uh, like I say, a little bit ahead of the curve and, and well prepared so that you can make it feel as, as easy as possible to, for those events to happen well. Hmm. And yeah. Tim, we haven't really mentioned that you're, of course, one half of the eventing power couple with, with, with your wife, Janelle. How much do your sort of yards and plans and horses interlink and how much do you run separate operations? We're very interwoven in terms of our team and everything. We have about eight staff when, when we're in full season. We only drop back to one. Everyone stays with us. They just have an easier time in, these, in the quieter months over the, over the winter. But it's not long before everything's full steam again with uh, horses coming back into work. So, so yeah, it's a busy, it's a busy yard. Um, we're very different in many ways, Janelle and I. Um, anyone that knows us will, will 
definitely agree with that. Um, but, you know, it works really well. We've got a great uh, working relationship with each other and and with the staff and somehow it just works. You know, I don't know many places that have it quite like that. They often have a, a separate setup within the same yard with uh, maybe their own head girl each or or staff and that sort of thing. But for us, we just keep it all very um, mixed. Um, but the guys know the different bits and pieces about each of us, whether it's how we like our horses done or set up or um, just everything. Anything that anything to do with our own horses, obviously, that comes comes to us directly. But, but the whole thing works very well. Um, and the yard and the farm that we're at is a great farm. It's very big. Um, spacious with good big fields and and you know stables and and things so that it's not all too compounded you know there's you know there's options to to spread out and things so now it works very well mm, that's great and of course you and Janelle are parents now as well how do you manage to to juggle fitting in your family with uh, with both being top level athletes too <laughs> just throw throw them on the back of the saddle and away you go <laughs> no, they're, they're, um, they're, they're, we've got Otis who's three years old and then little Abel she, she's uh, coming up a year old she'll be 11 months old so no they're, they're a really fun age we have a lot of fun with them um, we've got a, a great nanny who's part of the crew really she's she's just another uh, member of the team and they're often around the yard with us um, you know after preschool for Otis or you know they just come it's just three miles from where we live so so they're all around and come to a lot of the events uh, in the lorry and and yeah it's just a traveling circus basically but it's great fun these are fun years and uh we'll enjoy it as as hectic and mad and hard to organize as it is it's uh, a lot of fun but you know it's just important to have things in place so that when it comes to going to the competitions and, and being focused and doing your job you need to be able to to have that the ability to do that so it's just having things in place to enable that kind of plan Mm, for sure yeah. and do they any ponies on the yard yet are we breeding the next generation <laughs> no there's always been a big no not until they you know they go and beg for a pony but um i think otis would be more of a bike motorbike kind of little boy we're not you know not so sure but he loves his little tractors and bits and pieces but we can see abel glued to us if she comes to the to the arena and watches us ride and you can see she's just watching us go round and round which is a bit of a yeah that looks like there's something in the in the making there in terms of her um, desire to be involved in the horses but no ponies as yet we've had a couple that have tried to be dropped off at the farm for us by a couple of couple of friends but we've um, resisted at this point we'll wait and see <laughs> oh well we're going to be looking out for Otis and Abel in the future for sure but thank you so much for joining us today Tim and good luck for getting out there in 2021 yeah I can't can't wait to get out there this year it's going to be exciting and uh and we hope for a good one for everyone So I'm joined this week to kick off our 2021 news roundups by two of our news team. Firstly, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? How was your break? Oh, absolutely amazing. I've been out of loads of shows, jumping, you know, a metre 40 and winning and, you know, cantering down sunny beaches with gorgeous men. It's been brilliant. <laughs> I think I denote a note of irony in your voice. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded better than ploughing through knee-deep mud and not going anywhere. <laughs> 
Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm enjoying your fantasy break anyway. <laughs> Just um, yeah, keep that one in mind. I'm looking forward to jumping my meter 40 class this afternoon. Um, how about you, Becky? So we've also got our news writer, Becky Murray with us. How are things going with you, Becky? Well, quite similar. I, am, I think I was a bit optimistic in my plans for winter riding. Uh, my We've had nothing but ice and sleet cancelling every lesson I've tried to book the past two weeks. So my girl Chloe's had a mini holiday and everything's now turned to mud. So to be honest, I think I'd prefer a lot of snow. No. (laughs) (laughs) So the weather and COVID are both, everything is conspiring against us horse riders at the moment, which uh, is a bit of a lead into the first story we're going to talk about this week. Obviously, we're going to start the new year with a COVID story because that's what we're always talking about. And I feel like we ought to touch on this week's most recent news. First of all, we record our podcast news on a Tuesday. It's less than 24 hours after the most recent announcements of the full lockdown in England and Scotland. And obviously, this is just devastating for so many people for so many reasons. What indications do we have at this stage about what this means for the horse industry, Becky? Well, we are currently waiting for a full interpretation of the guidance from British Equestrian, Horse Scotland and the BHS. But at the moment, what we do know is you can leave home to provide care, exercise and veterinary services for animals. Outdoor sport venues must close, so there won't be arena hire. And we do expect shows to be off, but at present, racing to continue. Okay, yeah. So as you say, we're we're still waiting for some full guidance. I expect that'll be out there from the governing bodies by the time you listen to this podcast. And there are some sort of complex areas around things like whether instructors can work that that we expect to get some more information about probably before this podcast comes out, as, as I say. You've been working on a broader COVID story, haven't you, Becky, about sort of hopes for 2021, a bit more of a, a forward-looking and positive story. What did the sporting governing bodies say when you spoke to them about this? Well, firstly, obviously, it was agreed how difficult last year was and there is still an awful lot of challenges ahead in terms of the financial impact. But the feeling from British show jumping, British eventing and British dressage is quite positive looking further into this year. The governing bodies are working with organisers and competitors to give flexibility and for example, last year, there was, where those cancellations, other venues and organisers have maybe stepped in to help. So the community is really working together and there's no doubt it will take some time, but the governing bodies do believe there is light at the end of the tunnel and the hope is to see the sport fully recover this year. Hmm. And the story also contains some really interesting figures about approved centres accessing funding and also about closures of riding schools and livery yards last year. Can you give us a quick rundown of those statistics, Becky? So the British Horse Society launched a hardship fund last year to support centres and this is now in its third stage and so far 292 of 395 approved centres had access this third round of funding. The BHS also told me that three riding schools and two livery yards had closed down entirely last year and five riding schools had closed down but were still offering livery. What I was told is that those that closed down, this was because some didn't have any other option and some perhaps even received a good offer. So that is quite interesting. Obviously, every closure is a sadness for the industry and and in some cases terrible for the people involved. But I I'm actually a little bit surprised. I thought the more centres might have been forced into closure this year. So that sort of feels like a positive for me that it wasn't more, that those numbers weren't bigger. What about you, Becky? Did those numbers surprise you or was it sort of what you expected? 
I agree with you, Pippa. I did expect higher figures. And of course, I do wonder if we'll see more this year as our time goes on and obviously with there being another lockdown. But I do think it is encouraging that the hardship funding has been made available to approved centres and it's great to see people are taking this up. Hmm. Thank you, Becky. Well, that leads into the next story we're going to chat about, which is one that Eleanor's been working on, which is all about business viability and mostly about client attitudes in the horse world. Can you tell us a bit more about this one, Eleanor? Yeah, and and also um, the business owner possibly perspective as well, just because just you know these businesses livery yards competition centers riding schools obviously they have to make money because otherwise they won't be there and you know maybe clients livery clients riding school clients need to have a bit more idea of what those costs are you know it's not just obviously hay and straw and food and all the rest of it but it's you know operating the tractor for an hour to harrow the school or or do field maintenance or mend fences or do you know what I mean it, it all adds up and people need to realize that actually someone has to pay those costs hmm so on the client side sort of business owners were saying that that you know people who take lessons or people who have a horse in livery just don't really understand how much how many what how big the costs are is that right yeah yeah exactly and and there were one of the riding schools said if you turn up and obviously this won't maybe be a lot of our readers, but if a, a client turns up to ride for an hour once a week, you know, that's fine. That's that hour. But what about the other six days and 23 hours that that horse has to be looked after, which, of course, is, is um, massively relevant during the lockdown when all the horses and ponies still had to be cared for, but the centres couldn't make any money. Hmm. And there was some discussion in your piece too about yards undercutting each other. What did you find out about that and is there any solution to that happening? Well, yeah, I did speak to one livery yard owner who had to put her prices up and in the end she did lose clients as a result. But she was saying all the local yards in her area charged about the same. So obviously if she put her prices up, clients might go, oh, well, so-and-so down the road charges cheaper, I'll go there. But, you know, she actually was losing money and that you can't run a business and lose money. That's, That's just not fair on anyone. And I think it was mentioned in your article that there have been some talk about sort of a, a cap, a, a lower cap, I assume, on, on the prices to try and make it more viable and, and prevent this sort of competition to the bottom, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that would be brilliant if that could happen, if, if there could be some sort of agreement that you will charge at least this to make. Because especially we all know, you know, horses and, and running equestrian businesses is such hard, hard work. And you, yes, people do it for the love of it, but it does have to be a viable career as well and obviously there was just the suggestion that maybe people should have gradual price rises every year which every other goods and services you know all do um and then you won't suddenly get five years down the line and go oh i've got to put my prices up by 110 percent, which people won't put up with but if you put them up a few percent every year then you know maybe that works for everyone and it isn't just the smaller centres in yards that are sort of finding this. I go to Wellington Riding quite a lot for events and um, that's a really big centre. You know, they've got a lot of liveries. There are always lessons going on. There are lots of competitions there. And I was really amazed to read in your story that the finance director of the Wellington Estate felt that the equestrian centre there might actually not have survived without the estate's support last year, which is just extraordinary to me because it seems like such a big and busy and successful centre what was your reaction to the conversations you had while you were you were doing your research for this story Eleanor just sort of sadness really I mean from doing this job I know maybe what more than I did before I did this job about the the 
challenges facing equestrian businesses you know everything that we've reported on business rates and and this is even without covid so i do have so much sympathy for them about how difficult it is um to make a living but i had always thought that the bigger ones would be less affected but they're not it's all of them and mm. if we want them to carry on we 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 have to sort of be realistic about what we're going to have to pay Definitely an interesting one, and and, and as you say, a, a sad story in many ways. But hopefully, businesses can can keep going and find a way to be viable even in this very tough time. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you. And uh, now it's actually my turn to ask some questions um, for the last bit of the the news segment because uh, you've written a story in this week's magazine, Pippa. Can you tell us about it, please? Yeah. So I'm I'm not just a parasite who sucks <laughs> information out of other people. Sometimes <laughs> I do actually do some writing, as it turns out. But um, yeah, this is a story that I suggested because quite a few riders had said to me and, and sort of written in columns and so on during the course of last year that they felt like the standard of dressage in eventing had gone through the roof last year, maybe because of people having more time to work on their dressage during lockdown. So I was like, I wonder if this is actually true. So I went to the data analytics company, Equi Ratings, and I asked them if they could pull some figures from their enormous database and um, and tell us whether, whether it was true that eventing dressage had improved this year. And it ended up being a really interesting story that, that went places I didn't really expect. Okay, so so how did it sort of go on from what you maybe thought it was going to be at the start? How What other issues came up? Well, I was kind of expecting them to say maybe that the dressage had got better this year. And that was the case because dressage, the sort of average international dressage score this year is better than last year. But the first interesting part was that the improvement in dressage last year was not outsized. So the standard of dressage has been improving. The scores have been falling in international dressage for, for quite a period. So equating say that the average international eventing dressage score has fallen from 386 in 2008 to 34.6 in 2020. So scores have improved and the standard has risen, but they said that the decrease is sort of on trend. If you look at the graph, it's sort of a steady line of, of improvement rather than seeing a massive improvement, particularly last year due to the lockdown. So that was, I guess, the first sort of myth buster that they, uh, that they were able to put out with their with their figures but the story then went off in some interesting different directions because I was speaking to the Equiratings co-founder Sam Watson who is an Irish world team self-medalist so he's quite good at riding a horse as well as uh, as well as as crunching the numbers and he sort of said that, that the figures raised some questions about eventing's direction particularly when coupled with the fact that fewer horses are making the time across country at five star level and he was sort of asking whether there's too much emphasis on the dressage phase and that's affecting sort of the horses that we choose and and, and so on so it was it was a really interesting conversation that, that just developed in some different directions and and who else did you speak to um about the about the ideas so I also spoke to Alex Yuetian, the Chinese Olympic rider, and he one of the things that Sam said was that the dressage is improving, but he doesn't feel that the other phases are, and therefore maybe the dressage is becoming sort of t too influential compared to the other phases. Um, and Alex said he didn't think that was the case, that he wondered whether actually maybe riders' abilities in the show jumping and cross country have improved, and courses have also 
become more technical so those things are sort of keeping pace but it's just less obvious and in the dressage because you don't get a score in the same way and he felt that the current balance of the phases is, is is right and the sport we're seeing is is sort of the the proof of that the good sport we see um i also spoke to sue baxter who's a top level eventing dressage judge and she had a really interesting point which was that she thought that the sort of any improvement we might see from the time riders had during lockdown might come in this year in 2021 rather than being seen last year that sort of the work that riders have done on top line strength on flexibility on balance which will improve horses across all phases including making them safer cross-country sort of animals uh, but she felt that that sort of basic work might take time to show up in a test so that um, it might be the scores this year we need to look out for rather than last year so uh, maybe that's a story i'll have to do again next Next Christmas, Eleanor, to follow through on. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eleanor, Becky, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, COVID, business viability and eventing dressage scores. We will no doubt be back next week with more. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent in southern England and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. So in England, since I've been here, I've, I've come across a lot of problems and I suppose the, the underlying issues come down to the horse-human relationship. So... I find most UK horse owners love their horses to pieces and that can be to the detriment of their relationships. So some of the problems I come across are, are horses that are really pushy and, and uh, want to do their own thing. And a lot of this comes down to a lack of respect and, and being over familiar creates that, that lack of respect. So. It's something to treat horses as horses, um, but it's very easy, I think, for, for people to treat horses as their, as their kids and um, lose sight of how the horse-human relationship really works. I mean, on a rare occasion, I get the other end of the scale um, where horses are overfaced, they're, they're pushed a little bit much. Um, and interestingly, in the time I've been um, doing this work and working with remedial horses and, and starting youngsters, some of the trickiest remedials I've had have actually come from Ireland. Now, this is not a, um, a dig at the Irish whatsoever because there's some amazing horses that come out of there. But the ones that don't come through whatever system it is, they really are hard to fix. They're super anxious, anxious and super sensitive. So it'd be really interesting to find out and, and correct um, those anxiety problems that I get. But the overarching theme is horses are horses and you've got to be careful about putting human emotions on them. So if you have one of these horses that, that um, is a little pushy and you feel like you're a passenger with them, it's more on the ground that I see these problems than I always say to people, movement and respect are really closely linked. So if you find yourself being moved around by your horse, i.e. they look over in a direction and you get sort of shunted out of the way, 
then th that starts a little game and the horse starts to think, well, in terms of the hierarchy um, within the relationship, the horse feels more dominant and then starts to assert itself and start to take on its own decisions, um, which are not always conducive to, to what um, the handler wants or the environment needs. So um, the first thing to think about is um, being able to move your horse. Now there's lots of basic groundwork skills that are really important, but controlling your horse's hip or the driving force behind your horse is, is always my go-to. Um, so being able to step your hip sideways um, or disengaging the hind end, starting on the ground is a really powerful tool to, to deal with flight but it also stops the shoulder from leaning. So if your horse is stepping around its forehand, then the forehand um, will have to hold onto the ground. So it will stop falling towards you or leaning on you. So that's a starting point. Um, but generally speaking, being able to move your horse left, right, forwards and backwards easily are a really important prerequisite to having a respectful uh, respectful horse and a, and a good relationship with your horse. I have a program, um, an online resource, if you will, called Your Horsemanship, which is my online business. And in this um, resource, we have all the techniques that you'll need to gain this respect and gain um, more control in your horse's movement um, and help you progress your relationship. There's also uh, webinars and, and pieces on Facebook that I give keep um, tips coming through there to help anyone that might be looking for a few answers to, to some of these types of problems. Thank you, Jason. Next week, we'll be back with Jason for his advice on hassle-free clipping. We'll also have an A-star list guest for you when we welcome double Olympic champion Charlotte Dujardin to the Horse and Hand podcast. Plus, of course, we'll have all the latest news as normal. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. And I'll be back next week. Until then, take care and goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.